little bit of a mess to clean up here first. Why don't you turn with me today to our scripture reading. As in the bulletin, our scripture passage today is going to be from the New Testament in the um, book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be today looking at chapter 1, starting with verse 18 and reading on down through the end of the chapter to verse 31. Would you turn there with me? Sorry, I don't have the number in the, in the Pew Bible. I have my own Bible um, because I can't see those small letters in the Pew Bible. But um, verse, I'll give you a moment to get there. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Let's read God's word, starting with verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through, what, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So is the reading of God's most holy word. In 1857, while excavating a site around the centermost hill in what has, been known, has become known as the Seven Hills of Rome, the centermost hill, which is called the Palatine Hill, archaeologists unearthed a building that was part of the palace of the first century Roman emperor named Caligula. And in doing what these archaeologists and these historians always do, they, they, they learned that this unearthed unearth building they learned that this unearthed building had, after the demise of Caligula, he had become, he, his reign ended quite early. After only a few years, he was murdered, as most Roman emperors of the day were, murdered by his successful, successor. This particular structure that was part of his palace became a boarding school for imperial page boys. And the school building was later walled off to give support for additional buildings that were placed above it. And this effectively sealed off this particular building for centuries until it was uncovered in 1857. Now what's significant about this particular building is that later it became best known for a particular piece of graffiti that was found etched into its plaster walls. 
We might be surprised to learn that the practice of putting graffiti on the property of others is, is, is not really a new phenomenon, something that was actively being done in first, century, um, first and second century Rome, probably done a long time before that. And the contents of this, discreti, of this graffiti were something like an ancient cartoon. Depicted on the wall was a picture of a young man looking up in admiration and reverence at a crucified figure. And this particular figure had the body of a man, but it had the head of a donkey. And it was nailed out on a Roman cross in crucifixion form, suspended in the air. And at the bottom of the picture were these words, Alexa Minos worships his God. Dated sometimes around the second century, this particular piece of graffiti has become known as one of the earliest known depictions of a crucified Christ. And in light of what the Apostle Paul writes in this letter to the Corinthians at Corinth, we should not be surprised that the consensus today among scholars is that this particular piece of graffiti was meant to mock, meant as a mockery of Christian worship, meant as a mockery to this young man, Alexa Minos. One can imagine this particular Christian youth, possibly a student at the boarding school, being mocked and criticized for worshiping a god that was executed by Roman crucifixion. And in further of this humiliation, a cartoon for all to see was etched into the schoolhouse wall. You see, as in the first, you see, as in first century Corinth, second century Rome, and our own modern secular culture, the worship of a god who became man who was crucified on a Roman cross and was resurrected only to ascend to heaven and someday return again is nonsense to the fallen world. It's not just our secular, modern, scientific culture with all of our technology and research capabilities and academic achievements that looks at Christianity and finds it foolish. This is the way it's always been. Even the first century Greeks and Romans who held to an entire pantheon of gods with elaborate backstories, sometimes many sordid past, they found this message also to be foolishness. And this is what the Apostle Paul is addressing in our passage today in 1 Corinthians. While he's writing to the body of believers, we need to put this in context. He's writing to these believers in Corinth, and Paul starts out chapter 1, Let's look just a little bit above up to verse 12. He starts out chapter 1. What Paul's doing is he's addressing error in the church. He's addressing division among the believers. Look what he writes. Look what he writes in verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. You see, what was happening was that church members were following the apostles or the teachers that they felt met their own specific tastes. And they were splitting up into these groups, into these factions, based on their own consumer choices, based on their own felt needs. And here, we see this New Testament church, a church planted by the Apostle Paul himself. Can you think of a better church planner than that? Planted by Paul himself just a few years earlier. And this church is having all kinds of problems. And if we were to continue to look into the later chapters of this letter, we would see that there were several serious problems within the church at Corinth. Not only division, but also abuse of the sacraments, disorder during worship service, theological confusion over such doctrines as the resurrection, confusion over the proper exercise of Christian liberty within the gospel. And we need to recognize this. We need to recognize and remember that when we become discouraged with issues in our own churches today, 
You see, there's no perfect church, not even a church planted by the Apostle Paul. It's only a church of sinners who are struggling on our pilgrimage and it's time between the already and the not yet. And often, in ch- and often in church, we stumble and we become distracted from holding fast to the Word of God. And as a result, we may experience difficulties in our congregations. We may have to deal with and guard against doctrinal error in our church. We may have to deal with the oftentimes painful consequences of sin. We may have to deal with difficult matters of church discipline. And often when these things happen, we find ourselves tempted to run and to leave and to go to that church down the road where these problems don't exist. We look for that church that's not affected by the fall, by sin. And we fool ourselves, loved ones. We fool ourselves if we believe that such a church exists. As Charles Spurgeon famously said, the day we find the perfect church, it becomes imperfect the moment we join it. You see, the believers at Corinth would have, had, would have been more drawn than most urban people to the smooth talk, to the fine, polished rhetoric and powerful, attention-grabbing speakers. They lived in one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. Corinth was a strategic commercial center, often filled with international visitors. We could say they lived in the New York or the London or the Paris of our day. The lore of refinement and the pressure to appear sophisticated would have made presentations from the intellectuals of that day extremely appealing. And starting with verse 18, Paul contrasts this worldly wisdom that has become so sought after. He contrasts it to the preaching of the cross of Christ. And as we go through these texts, I want to emphasize two points. And it's really the two points that are laid out in this first verse in verse 18. First point being that the cross is foolishness to the lost. And the second point, that the cross is power to those who are called. Foolishness to the lost. Now what does Paul mean in verse 18 by this phrase, the word of the cross? Well, that's just another way of referring to the gospel. And some may ask, well, what is the gospel? And all of us should be able to define this by now. The gospel is the good news of the guiltless life, the perfect obedience to God's law by his son, Jesus Christ. The good news of his sacrificial, atoning, and propitiating death by crucifixion on a Roman cross. And of his glorious resurrection from the dead as the first fruits of a new creation. A creation that is already breaking into this fading evil age being proclaimed by his church through the preaching of his word. A new creation that will be fully realized when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. When he returns to reign over his everlasting kingdom. And this good news is for sinners. It's good news because it reveals to us that we can be made right with God. That we can be reconciled to God and brought into the presence of God as his adopted children. Simply by receiving these truths by faith alone. By trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And as Paul points out, the world hears of this redemption brought about by this humiliated Savior. And sees this crucified Jesus being worshipped. And they say to themselves, and they say to each other, what foolishness. What foolishness. Paul goes on to point out that the the preaching of Christ crucified is as a stumbling block to the Jews. You see, to the Jews, the idea that their promised Messiah would be crucified on a Roman cross is utterly offensive. The teaching that the Davidic king, the one who would sit on the throne of David, who would redeem all of Israel, 
would be humiliated and executed by the Romans in such a degrading manner? manner? This was nonsense. We can all imagine them saying, what's wrong with this new sect they call Christians? Didn't they know that the Messiah would come and crush the enemy of God's people? Not to be crucified by them. What are these Christians talking about? As Paul points out in verse 22, that the Jews of that day wanted more signs, more miracles. And you know, I'm always taken aback. I'm always perplexed when I hear someone say, and usually this is someone I'm uh, a non-believer I'm talking to, and, and they're criticizing the Bible, and later I come to find out that they've never really read the Bible. And they say, you know, if God is real, if God exists, why doesn't he just show up and show me a sign or perform some miracle to prove it to me? Then I'll believe. Then I'll follow God. He just needs to prove himself, prove that he's here. You ever hear that from non-believers? Well, if they would just read that Bible that they're so ready to criticize, maybe they would notice. Maybe they would notice that God has already demonstrated in his word that signs and wonders will never be enough to turn the hearts of fallen sinners. Signs and wonders will never be enough to enable us to live lives of righteousness. Never enough to cause obedience to God's law. Did God not part the Red Sea, allowing the people of Israel to pass through in order to escape their Egyptian slave masters? Did God not lead the Israelites through the wilderness by a visible cloud by day and fire by night? Did God not provide manna from heaven to fall to the ground to provide food for Israel when it was hungry in the wilderness? Did God not provide water from the rock when it was struck by the staff of Moses in the desert? Did God not bring down the walls of Jericho? You see, loved ones, the people of Israel, they witnessed all of these things, all of these signs, all of these wonders. And did they ultimately turn their hearts to God? No, in fact, it is not long after these events that they start to worship other gods, to put altars in the high places, to worship Baal, to turn away from God. Signs and wonders didn't work. They never will. Because, loved ones, it's not signs and wonders that save sinners. Left to ourselves, we'll only demand more. It's not these visible visible miracles that turn fallen sinners back towards God. Only the Spirit of God can do that. As Paul points to in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, and he starts out out verse 4 by saying those wonderful words that we... That are so sweet to hear. But God. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together. With Christ. But it's not only the perishing Jews who rejected the message of the cross. Paul also points out that the message of Christ was also folly to the Gentiles. When we see a cross today on top of our church building, back there on that beautiful mosaic, behind our pulpits or on necklaces of of our loved ones, we see a sign of comfort. We see a sign and a reminder that that we are saved and redeemed by our Savior on the cross. We see it as a symbol representing the Christian faith. The Gentiles of Paul's day would have seen this whole idea as foolishness where we see a symbol of comfort and a symbol of our faith, they see an instrument of torture, an instrument of execution. The idea of a cross to them was one of humiliation, 
so much that Roman citizens were forbidden from being crucified. Crucifixion was deserved for the worst of the worst. Can you imagine driving down the street and looking on top of one of the new places of worship of one of the new cults in town that just got started up and mounted on the roof of that building was an electric chair? I would would, would guess a lot of us would be reluctant to go into such a building. In fact, when it comes to it, I think we would find it quite grotesque. The Greeks of the first century would have found such a message to be appalling. What is this all about, this God who became man and allowed himself to be crucified by the Romans, only to be resurrected again into a human body, they would say. You see, the Greeks had no interest in hearing that their bodies would be raised again in their immortality. Their goal was to leave this body, to move on to something more real, something more pure. That's what they had learned from their teacher Plato. That's what they hoped for. Not a bloody cross, not a savior who would be crucified on a bloody cross. And these were not only first century problems with Christianity. People still still today see the message of some kind of sacrificial, substitutionary death to be illogical, to make no reasonable sense. Imagine, they might say, a God who sacrifices his only son to bring salvation to sinners. How barbaric, how impractical. It's like those unlearned, unlearned heathens of old throwing virgins into volcanoes. What are they doing? What are they talking about? And all those, those who are perishing see the message of Christ and him crucified as foolishness. They have no problem with Christianity as long as we stay in our lane. Oh, as long as we don't go around claiming the historical truth of the cross of Jesus Christ. As long as we don't go around calling for repentance and a turning away from sin. As long as we don't get in the way of letting everyone live their lives how they see best and pleasing to themselves from seeking their own happiness the best way they know how. As long as we ignore our fallenness and sin and don't proclaim Jesus Christ as the only way to redemption and everlasting life. Yes, the world is quite comfortable with a Christianity that turns to worldly wisdom. Oh, they would say there's nothing wrong with going to church as long as it helps you become a better, nicer, more tolerant person. As long as you can get some practical advice on how to make your life better and more fulfilled. As long as it makes, as long as it makes you happier. As long as you and your church can do good things for the community. You see, the world is okay with those things. Those things are wise. Those are things that can give us an edge. Just don't go on talking about God's law and sin and hell, repentance and bloody crucifixions. And this nonsense about Jesus being the only way, they would say. No one wants to hear that. I can tell you I've seen many methods and promotions in churches, on the internet, and in periodicals, on signs and on billboards and buildings aimed at growing Christ's church. From using statistical studies and demographic surveys to gleam what people want in a church and trying very hard to give them just that. To offering free tickets to movies or sporting events. Free fitness centers. You can go to some particular churches and you don't even have to pay that steep fee at Reds. From interest groups, from knitting to surfing to interpretive dance, coffee shops inside of churches, programs on how to manage your finances, how to scrapbook, art classes. And yes, I remember attending a church and volunteering at the skate park they had to attract 
new members. You could go skateboarding and then hopefully they could get you into the sanctuary out of the skate park. And this shows that many leaders of our church today have turned to the wisdom of the world instead of God's word and discerning how to save sinners. Instead of resting on the proclaimed gospel as the power of God unto salvation, they rather rely on techniques espoused by marketing gurus and business managers. And in doing this, they are demonstrating that they too doubt the power of the cross. They too see the messages of the cross as foolishness. They may say to others, oh, oh, you will never keep people coming back to church if you keep preaching Christ and him crucified. Who wants to hear that? That message just doesn't sell in our modern world. But do you ever see the apostles using such bait-and-switch schemes? Oh, we'll get you in with slick techniques, and then we'll sneak the gospel in every once in a while just so we can check that box. And as one preacher put it, that is being ashamed of the gospel. And that is shameful. You see, the world sees that, and they mock us. They're saying, look at these Christians. They don't even have a message worth hearing. They're using gimmicks. Christ and him crucified is the only thing that the church has to preach. And when the church has moved away from from focusing on that message, the end result has always been it ceasing to be a church of Christ. It will usually end up losing so many members that it shuts down. Or worse, it continues, and it continues to proclaim a false gospel. But whatever the case, its lampstand is removed. That is why Paul in verse 19 quotes in paraphrase form Isaiah 29, 14, saying, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This should serve as a warning from Paul. Stop doing what is attractive to the world. Proclaim the gospel of Christ and him crucified, because that is the only thing the church has to preach. And this gospel is proclaimed because this gospel does something that nothing else can do. And that brings me to my second and last point. The cross is power to those who are called. Let's look at verses 23 through 25 again. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, Paul is reiterating here what he states back in verse 18, in the second part of it. What he's saying is one of the most important things that the church needs to remember today. That the word of the cross, the preaching of Christ crucified, the proclamation of the gospel, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And some may ask, well, power and wisdom for what? Was Paul so clearly and eloquently tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where the apostle writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, God doesn't leave us wondering which techniques or which methods to use when calling sinners to salvation and into his church. He tells us, Proclaim the word of the cross. Proclaim Christ crucified. Which is all just saying, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Stop worrying about what the world is going to think about our worship music. 
about the way the pastor is dressed, about whether we have enough programs to meet the felt needs of the community. Preach Christ and Him crucified. And although the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ may be foolishness to those of the world, although those who are perishing may hear Christ proclaimed and see folly where we see power, those who are being saved see and hear it much differently. For Paul tells us it is the power of God for those who are saved. Now some may certainly ask, how can I know if I'm one of the ones being saved? Well, I ask you to ask yourself this. When you hear Christ proclaimed, how do you respond? Do you hear this proclamation of a Christ crucified as foolishness and dismiss it outright as nonsense? Does it have any effect on you at all? Or do you find yourself convicted of sin, longing for that salvation that is promised in the gospel, throwing yourself at the foot of the cross and putting all your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your only, your once and for all Savior? Because if you find yourself in that state, if you have fully placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Redeemer through his atoning death on that bloody Roman cross, then that salvation you're longing for, that salvation you were wondering about, it's yours. It's yours. And finally, to most of us, this good news is even better than we could have ever expected. You see, Paul gives us one little statement that's so easily passed over. One little word he used. Let's look again closely at verse 24. But to those who are called. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, you don't need to rely on your own righteousness, your own wisdom, your own willingness to be brought into the family of God. You are there because you were called by the God and the creator of this world. And as Paul teaches us in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 4 through through 10, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of, as, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things to him, things in heaven, and things on earth. You see, loved ones, if you belong to the family of God as his adopted children, it is because he chose you before the foundation of the world. Not because he foresaw any good that you might do in the future, but because of his own will and his own purpose, he chose you. He chose you if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. And as Paul goes on to teach us, no, I, I, I'm sorry, as our Lord teaches us in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, hear this good news. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Believers, 
you can rest assured today that your faith is secure, that you are secure in Jesus Christ, knowing that you cannot be snatched from the hand of our Lord. You see, God did not leave us with unfinished works to complete. He did not leave us with things to do to earn our salvation. 2,000 years ago on that dark Friday afternoon, when he was breathing his last, before he breathed his last breath and cried out, it is finished. That is exactly what he meant. That all the work that needed to be accomplished was accomplished by Christ on the cross. That all the righteousness that needed to be obtained was obtained by Christ. And in that great exchange, our sins were laid upon him and his righteousness was imputed to us. So at the end of this fading evil age, when he returns to judge the living and the dead, that we would stand blameless before him and that every teardrop would be wiped away from our eyes. So you want righteousness? Don't follow the wisdom of this world. Don't do as so many worldly teachers tell us to do and to look inside ourselves, to look into your heart. I've looked into my heart. I know what's there. It's not righteousness. It's not righteousness. Loved ones, look to the cross. You want sanctification? Look to the cross of Christ. You want redemption? Look to the cross of Christ. You see, Christ on the cross accomplished it all. And that's why Paul writes at the end of our section, at the end of this chapter, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that we have your scripture and and your proclamation of the gospel of your son.